Uh-huh. Good morning, Lincoln. It's time for How's It Growing, your weekly gardening connection. Only here at KZUM Lincoln. Hi, I'm Bob H. with the Nebraska Statewide Arboretum. We plant Nebraska each and every day. Plantnebraska.org. A great place for you to check out some great information about plants. All right, thanks for joining me today on this hot, steamy day. Uh, man, the last days of June upon us. July, you're saying hello to. Happy 4th to you and yours. Hope you're planning some fun this weekend, getting out and enjoying nature. You should be out harvesting things. Man, there's so many things you could be harvesting right now. We won't go into that because there's just so many, right? <laughs> oh, I had a little bit of an adventure yesterday. I drove all the way up to Halsey and uh, participated in the uh, Natural Resource District's uh, ACE Camp, which is adventure camp about the environment with a bunch of 4-H kids. Uh, this is an annual thing up at the, uh, the State 4-H building there up at the Nebraska National Forest in Halsey. Maybe you've been there before, right? Maybe even went to one of the camps held by the, the Natural Resources District. Big shout out to uh, the uh, Upper Loop Natural Resources District for hosting that yesterday, that ACE Camp, and to all the NRDs out there that do the great work throughout the state, celebrating 50 years of helping our environment right here in Nebraska. Good work, NRDs. And uh, yeah, so yesterday I went up there and uh, led, I was three different groups of kids. And uh, so I went uh, on a, a nature hike with them to show them about wild edible plants. And I tell you, it was pretty refreshing. These are seven, eight year old kids and uh, they were all pretty darn interested and attentive. And you know, who doesn't like to go out there and snack on things out in the wild, right? And kids are no exception. I think this one kid wanted to try everything, which brought up a good point. Dude, don't just try things just because. You have to know the plant. You have to know what's edible. Don't just uh, willy-nilly go out there and snack on something. That could be poisonous. Everything's edible once, right? Yeah. So anyway, what was kind of refreshing up there in the Halsey area, they have a lot of yuccas, our native soapweed. So I was able to tell them where it got its name soapweed from and, uh, you know, um, that the petals are edible, the flowering stalk is edible. And I learned from one kid uh, who's from the Sandhills country that told me the, the developing seed pod, you can split open and eat those uh, unripe seeds and uh, the pulp within that. So that was a new one to me. So what's great about things like that is they'll teach you something too. And then this other eight-year-old kid, I started, uh, first plant I talked about was a ponderosa pine right there that had some unripe pine cones on them. They're the green pine cones that you see, the young pine cones just forming. They're around, oh, an inch and a half or so right now. And I was and he's actually, before I even said anything, said, oh, you can make a syrup out of those. I've made it before. And I'm like, what? Eight-year-old kid? And I said, did mom and dad teach you that? And he said, no, I kind of found out about it myself and, and uh, told mom and she helped me make it. And she said it was delicious. So here's an eight-year-old kid said that. So check it out, folks. Uh, uh, Google this and see what you think. It inspired me, and I went out and collected young pine cones from Austrian pines because we have a lot of them here. And this is kind of this uh, European thing, mainly in an Italian recipe uh, called Mugolio. And M-U-G-O-L-I-A, Mugolio. And Mugolio has been made for centuries in Italy and uh, historically with the Mugo pine, but it doesn't have to be with mugo pine. I know a dude on Forager Chef is a good place. If you Google making homemade mugolio, you'll probably come across that site first, the Forager Chef site. But uh, fun thing to do, and you want to use uh, good raw sugar like turbinado sugar 
or, or brown sugar, good organic brown sugar. Uh, why not use good sugar if you're making a syrup, right? And uh, the turbinado, and you just mix uh, one part uh, unripe pine cones. So I just weighed those. I think I had three pounds of them and then purchased six pounds of turbinado, which is, you know, eh, it kind of hurts a little bit. But hey, if the syrup works out, it's going to be worth it. Because man, I found out online a bottle of that Mugolio, uh, you know, 750 mil bottle run you 43 bucks. So, <laughs> and it's not hard. It just takes time. So uh, going to be a lot of fun to make. So look up that recipe. You'll be glad you did and make your own pine cone syrup. Boy, wouldn't that be fun to serve to your guests? But you can use it just how you would use any, any syrup, right? Over your pancakes, your waffles, drizzle it over some fruit salad, whatever. It has all the pine essence and uh, rich, beautiful uh, syrup. And I did it last Thursday, I think it was. I mixed the pine cones with the syrup or with the, the sugar. And one week later, uh, the, the sugar has pulled all the water and the resins out of those pine cones. And now the sugar is all dissolved and it just kind of looks like this slurry, uh, dark brown slurry. Good looking stuff. So I'm looking forward to that. Uh, the Mugolio. So that's your, that's your plant to look up today. Uh, pine cone syrup. And you'll be glad you did. Mugolio. Check it out. Only here at How's It Growing right here on KZUM. All right, today's guest, I have uh, a repeat guest on the show. Looking forward to this conversation, I have Leslie Darling on the program again from Leslie Darling Fibers. Leslie, welcome to the program. Hi, Bob. Thanks for having me back. You're welcome. Glad to have you back. At, uh, is, is the season just flying by for you? Oh, my goodness. Absolutely. It's... Um we're, you know, too, not too late to put some things in the ground, but too late for other things and time to start picking and harvesting. So, yeah, um, I also teach a lot of classes, so I'm getting ready for a whirlwind summer of traveling around. <laughs> oh, awesome. Awesome. Well, yeah. yeah, that's well, that's great. I mean, if, if you if you weren't busy, there'd be something wrong right in life. Absolutely. <laughs> well, well, uh, well, kudos to you for what you do. And folks, you can find Leslie, just type in Leslie Darling Fiber online and you'll come across her website, um, her, her bio. And, and Leslie, I'm just going to go read, go ahead and read this because I think it's a great bio. Oh, sure. yeah. So, so Leslie is based in the Great Plains and her passion for fiber and folk life has led her to, uh, on quite the journey from Norfolk, Oh, Northern Folk Schools. I almost said Norfolk. You're not from Norfolk. All right. Anyway, <laughs> Northern Folk Schools to volunteering with rare breed sheep in Wales. Man, Leslie, you've been places. Uh, so <laughs> anyway, uh, weaving in an attic studio of village elders uh, there in Wales uh, who speak a d the dying language that predates modern Swedish. And that's pretty amazing. And so she's... Uh, being spooked by bears in Appalachia while die hunting uh, is another story that, uh, well, that'd be kind of fun to learn about, Leslie, uh, being, <laughs> being chased by bears while you're die hunting. Uh, that's, that's your die hard. I mean, man, there's all sorts of puns you could do with this. All right. Yeah. So in addition to growing and, and, and foraging natural dyes, she practices historical and regional knitting, weaving, and yarn spinning. Oh, and it reminds me, Leslie, there was a big event you were telling us about uh, last time you were on the program, and, and for the life of me, I can't remember if that's still upcoming. Oh, we did have it, the Fiber the fiber Fair in York. It was fantastic. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yes, yes. yes. Cool, cool. <laughs> did you have a good turnout? It was great, yeah. Um, it's um, it's put on, it's called the Mid Plains Fiber Fair, and um, it's really fun because you see a lot of regional growers um, so yeah, it was, it was fantastic. Um, that's every year. Um, next year it's going to be in October 
Um, and you can look them up as well, the Mid Plains Fiber Fair. Yeah. Mid Plains Fiber Fair. And and folks, you know, uh, I just appreciate the work you do. And and you, you also sell natural yarn for dyeing, right? And natural dyed yarns. Yes. So I, um, so as we, we kind of talked about last week, it's been an interesting, uh, or last time we talked, it's been kind of an interesting year. I um, had a little bit of a studio upset. Yes. Um, so I've kind of paused on retail for a little bit, but okay. I'll be back at the, um, I'll be back at the Sunday farmer's market this fall, oh, good. um, which is exciting. So I teach, um, I teach techniques like skills, like how to natural dye. I sell kits so you can like learn how to do it at home. And then I also sell finished items. So maybe you like the idea of working with something that's been dyed with plants or wearing something that's been dyed with plants, but that's not your, you know, particular passion. You're not ready to buy a dye pot. So I do sell like finished items um, that folks can work with as well. So a whole range of things, right? <laughs> right, no doubt. And, and I, I probably asked you last time because, you know, hemp is in the news a lot now. Cause, so my dream would be, okay, I'm going to get something that you created uh, that is made out of hemp fiber with a natural dye. Can I get that? Um, we'll talk. <laughs> yes, yes. I've got cotton... Yeah, the hemp hemp is absolutely the same the same process, but you know it's more expensive to buy still. Right, so. right, exactly. <laughs> I try yeah. to keep things very accessible, right? That's kind of my goal too. Too cool, especially with our with our Lincoln community, or, you know, with our regional community is like, you know, what you can charge for something in Chicago or New York City is not what works for people around here usually. Right, right. So you know, I try to make anybody be able to have natural dyes in their life, whether you know, so. It's not like three hundred dollar items I'm selling. Sometimes. That's really cool. Sometimes that means you know the hemp tea towels. We'll, we'll talk about. We'll, talk about. <laughs> well, that's well, that's great. Yeah, you know that's we we consumers appreciate that. And you're right, Nebraska's not quite ready for that yet. But uh, you know, and I do have to say, uh, changing the subject here a little bit. Last time we were on, I mean, I could talk plants with you all day, but um, you had mentioned that your dad was able to listen to the show. So, dad, if you're listening again, hi, and uh, he liked the fact that we were talking about nettles and uh so and and you had said to me in an email about you you guys uh and maybe you still do make nettle pasta and so i want to have you tell our listeners quick because uh the the late great Kay young has a nettle pasta recipe in her book and uh so i was curious you know uh you guys did make it and and you do you still make it to this day and and convince me and my listeners that you need to do this uh put it on your bucket list put it on your bucket list well it's always fun to eat green noodles um and it's really simple so um the way that we make nettle noodles you know we do it on a semi-regular basis. Dad's listening. He's probably going right. to say semi-regular, <laughs> semi-regular for us is a long year span. But um, they're very simple to make. So you don't, um, you can uh, harvest the nettles when they're green, you mm-hmm. know, when they're fresh. Mm-hmm. And we dry them. So you can, like, you know, wearing gloves, if you don't like getting stung, cut them off low, like cut off a whole stalk um, above the growth rhizome so it'll come back. But tie it up with a string just hang it in a closet or in your garage or somewhere so it'll dry completely. And that's the same preparation you can use for nettles for pretty much any application. So like if you're using nettle for tea um, to help with your allergies with the histamine, um, or if you're interested in using nettle um, to add like more nutritional value to your soups, you can just take those dried leaves 
and throw them in a soup, throw them in a tea. And that's the same thing we do with the pasta where we, we dry the leaves and then we just grind them up with a mortar and pestle. You could zap them in a, on like a spice grinder if you wanted to. Mm-hmm. And then when you're, when you're making pasta, which is essentially flour and water, um, you can add in a tablespoon or two um, or more of the dried nettles um, with that flour mix. That's kind of how you do any kind of a colored pasta. So gotcha. maybe harvesting nettles isn't your thing, but you think pink pasta sounds cool. Right. Like you could use beet powder, oh, right? Cool. You could add a couple tablespoons of beet powder or turmeric or whatever, you know, and that's the way you can add some flavor and nutritional value or just like excitement to your pasta. Um, and then when you actually make the noodles, it's just like playing with Play-Doh, which is pretty fun. You can roll them out, cut them, um, However, you can make ravioli, you know, I mean, pasta is a whole, right. whole world. Oh, but it's, anyways, a, it's a whole world. Oh, that's good. And, 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 and of course we know there's a YouTube video out there for it. I'm sure. Right. Yeah, totally. That, uh, yeah, totally. Yeah. And probably 10 of them. And I have, and I got a piggyback on that. Cause I was so, I, I love, we're, you know, we're going to keep ending up in these conversation cycles. Every time I'm on, we're going to be like, right. last time you said, <laughs> so, um, I, I, when you talked about, um, this program, you just did in Halsey and this younger kid having heard about the pine cones. Yeah. So not, you know, not all listeners here are maybe, um, using all the social media apps, but, one of the reasons I think that um, that kid might have heard about that um, using pine cones to make a flavored syrup with is there's a really, really, really popular forager um, on TikTok and Instagram, uh-huh. and she um, her her handle or her like username is Black Forager, and she um, is amazing. She makes really accessible. Here's how to forage. Here's how to identify different plants. Um, so she's really done a lot to connect with younger, um, awesome. the younger audiences. And so I love that you were out there in Western Nebraska and heard about this. Isn't song. that wild? Yeah, so I, I couldn't believe it. I was like, before I even could talk about it, this kid's saying that. And I was like, what? How did you hear? What? Yeah, 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 I, she's, she's a celebrity. She's an internet celebrity who just forages, you know. <laughs> too cool. Too cool. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I, I don't know if you've ever tried it before. I mean, obviously it's going to be months in the making, but still I'm excited to uh, try it. When I open the jar and smell it, whoo, puppy dogs, does it smell like a, some intense pine cone or intense pine oh. essence? Uh, looking oh, forward to so it. Good. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Good. yeah fun, fun. Drinks. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's going to yeah. be great. Uh, looking forward to it. Yeah. And okay. So, so quickly, Leslie, I know it's the fastest hour in radio, but um, also, so your dad, you guys used to use this because this time of year, you know, it's past middle spring har- harvest, but you guys actually, because I, I talked to the kids yesterday about the sting of the nettle is actually not pumping poison into your body. It's pumping medicine into your body. It just itches. Exactly. And, and so yeah. you guys, you had talked about using, so right now the, the nettles are tall, what, shoot, four to five feet tall and you could go out there and harvest the stalks right and what do you use the stalks for yeah so long term the stalks can actually be used it's um you know to make fiber from which is a little bit what we talked about last time yeah where any type of tall plant like that that's that's essentially what flax or linen is made from it's the same way hemp is processed so you know, the leaves are a little bit thinner on the nettles right now when the stalks get taller, but I do like to let people know, you know, for people who feel like they've missed, you know, spring season when people talk about using the lush, you know, the fresh, the fresh, lush baby leaves, mm-hmm. if you can still use the leaves now. They'll have different, um, you know, 
components in them, like the, the chemical, like the, the naturally occurring chemicals within the leaves will change mm-hmm. in terms of like how much mineral content it has or how much flavonoid it has um, throughout the season. And you can still harvest them, you know, throughout the year. So I think I just like to let people know that that's a possibility too, instead of feeling like, oh, I didn't harvest nettles. You know, in May, I can't use them at all this year. Like I'm too late. <laughs> yeah, you still have the opportunity. You know, with linden, which I don't know if you talked about last week, but, you know, it's linden flowers, like, they're gone, right? They're there and they're gone. Right. And you do have to wait till next year. But something like nettle, the leaves aren't as, you know, prolific per stock, but you can still definitely, you know, work with those if you're interested in trying to make a tea or noodles or something like that. So, right. um, yeah. Yes. For some reason, I'm getting this weird sound coming from your connection. Like it's like, uh, I don't know, like it's just, it's like you're not talking in a hollow box or anything. I don't know if you have it on speakerphone or anything. Uh, but no, it's, but I, I'm in a fairly empty room. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like something sounds funky. I don't know what it is, but I, I just didn't want the audience to be listening to it going, come on, man, your phone connection stinks, guys. But I can hear you pretty good now. So, But the stalks you can take, and you're actually purposely putting that across, what, your sore joints, uh, suffering oh, from arthritis? Yeah. So- so, yeah, one of the things that we will also, that, you know, is kind of a, a another common folk remedy that nettles are used for is um, using that stinging quality to, um, yeah, assist with, like, sore joints. So, um, if you have, like, arthritis in your hands, sometimes you can just go across those um uh, fresh leaves and let that stinging work as a medicine. Like it'll sting, but it brings, um, right. It brings circulation to the area. Um, so sometimes like if I've got like a sore back or sore muscles and I'm out, I will literally just like rub really fresh nettle leaves on my shoulders, which is <laughs> sounds extreme, right? right? That's pretty um, fun. But I, I know how I react. So my also like, you know, due diligence advice on that for anybody listening is like, if you know you have a extreme reaction to nettles, don't do that, please. Right. Um, you know, it's always good to test <laughs> how you're going to react. I'm kind of one of those curious people who like chooses to see how I'm going to react to something, especially if I know it's reactive. So, um, you know, if it's the first time you've touched metal, don't do that because some people do have a more extreme response, just like more dermatitis and things like that. Gotcha. But, um, yeah, it's like a histamine response that occurs within the body and that's what causes that like red bump or that red sore. Okay. Um, and that's why we use antihistamines to treat things like stings, even from insects. Um, it's part of the immune system's response. And so by adding a little bit of that histamine superficially to an area, the idea is that it just brings the immune system's awareness to that area so it can kind of like fix up other things. That makes sense. It's a very good medicine. It's you know, me- do I have a, do I have a, a peer-reviewed article to refer <laughs> you to for that? Yeah. I do not, right? But it is something that people have done for a really long time and Right. There's a lot more European, you know, research around plants as medicine in general because right. there's more of a cultural value investment in that. Um, yes. You can't make money from plants. I mean, right. you can't necessarily make, you can't make, <laughs> you can't patent to plants particularly. That, you that's know? right. 
And that phrase, folks, I'm going to give you a thrashing, came from literally people thrashing a sore back or a back problems, kidney problems with nettles. Uh, it was like, it goes back not just centuries, I'm thinking thousand years or two. Oh, um, yeah. It's uh, So something that's been around that long, I kind of trust it versus something that's been around for six months. Uh, yeah, no pun intended there. Okay, so so anyway, just, uh, just wanted to get that shout out to Nettles, uh, Dad. So uh, hopefully we gave it uh, you nettle nerd, you. Uh, hopefully gave it uh, its due. But uh, as we talked in email, Nestle, we could talk about nettles for the whole show. <laughs> and maybe <laughs> maybe I need to have you back on. We just This is the nettle show. We have it once a year, and I could have Barbara on the other line, and all three of us just go nuts on net, over nettles. I think that'd be fun. <laughs> We'll, we'll plan that next year. We'll just we'll just plan a it's nettle season type of thing, and we'll just do a whole show just on nettles. So I'll, I'll invite okay. you back for that. All right. So so Leslie Darling Fibers, folks, uh, you can look her up online and uh, and do the great see the great work Leslie's doing. She's going to be back at the Sunday Farmers Market this fall. Do you know is it going to be September, Leslie, or what? Probably September, October. We're still finalizing some of those details. So, um, but I'll probably be there, and I'll probably be at the holiday markets as well. Cool. So, on my website, I usually have like little updates about that. You can sign up for an email list on my website, and I'll send out some information about that. Very good. So, yeah. Yeah. So make sure you stop by and say hi and say I heard you on. How's it growing? All right. Yeah. So let's. Uh, we only take one break during the show, and that's not till 11.30 now, Leslie, but we can dive right into it. And uh, so I'm curious, how do natural dyes work? Why, uh, why natural dyes versus any other, I guess? Absolutely. So, um, you know, natural dyes are the idea of using not a chemical um, that's made in a lab, to add color to anything in our life has been something that humans have done for at least 30,000 years, which is crazy, 30,000 right. years. <laughs> and um, when you look around your home right now or wherever you're sitting, you're certainly looking at a piece of fabric or some ink on a piece of paper or something like this. And those have all been dyed, unless you're maybe in my house, you know, those have all been dyed with um, synthetic um, chemicals or dyes that are typically a byproduct of the oil industry or the coal tar industry. Mm. And those were invented in the mid-1800s. Actually, it was an accident. Nobody was trying really? to create... Yeah, it was an accident. Nobody was trying to solve a problem. It was just accidentally this natural uh, uh, a synthetic version of a color was created and it happened to be one of the reds, which is a very frustrating color in natural dyes. Uh -huh. So so they're like, wow, look at this. So now, you know, in the span of like 200 years, everything around us is dyed with um, synthetic chemicals. That's how life is. And, it, you know, it's not, it's not a bad thing. They definitely have their place in their application. Some of them are a lot more resistant to UV rays. You know, our ink is really black. You have Sharpies. I love Sharpies. Right. <laughs> so uh, we need Sharpies sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, a 30,000-year tradition was really overshadowed by um, this invention. And when I talk about natural dyes, so I work with fiber, right? So I work with a lot of clothing. But, I mean... It goes beyond that. You might be like, well, I don't know if I care about naturally dyed clothing, but like ink. Ink was made from plants. It still is in some places, but ink is made from plants. Black ink is made from plants, mm. from oak gall. Okay. And all of the paints 
that people were using. Um, you know, when you look at illuminated texts, you know, from the rent, like that the monks were painting and making, like those are natural dyes just on paper. Wow. And so um, it really covers the whole breadth of human experience. And our plants were super involved in like economic history. So they were like major experts from countries um, to other places. And I mean, just, it, you know, you could look at the whole history of humanity through dyes and fabric and it would probably be more interesting than wars, but you would realize how those <laughs> materials related to the wars, right? They're, they're related to colonialism, they're related to wars, et cetera. So, um, but how they work is the number one question. Like why, you know, how does it work? Because we're used to something um, like writ dye. A lot of people have seen writ dye. You go to Michael's, you put it in a washing machine, and you put in a piece of fabric, and it turns out blue and it sticks. Um, so natural dyes have a different process. We have like all, a lot of plants in the world have these natural um, dye components and we have to make them stick to fabric. Mm. So I, I had you ask me this question because I don't want people to think, um, I'm going to talk about some plants, you know, but I don't want people to just go pick all those plants and then try to like put fabric in them because it's not going to work. Um, mm. Because typically you, it, it's a, you know, it's a really beautiful organic process that involves the fabric itself, and then it involves the mineral, like alum, like pickling alum, which you can get at Ace Hardware or anywhere else that you buy things. Um, the co-op has it sometimes. So um, there's a mineral component and a mineral interacting with a plant, interacting with natural fibers is what creates natural color on fabric. So it's this really kind of symbiotic, um, or like extreme chemical reaction, you know, it's scientific, but there is this kind of alchemy to bringing, um, you know, rock minerals and plants and textiles together um, to create um, just tones that you can't really capture in, in synthetic dyes, which is really fun. That is. Um, so, so I don't want anyone to um, run out and go harvest all of their marigolds right now and cook them in a pot and throw fabric in and then be disappointed when it doesn't stick. <laughs> because right. a little more, there's a little more to it than that. Um, but, um, yeah. I sacrificed all my marigolds for this. <laughs> it, exactly. it ran oh, man. Yeah. Okay, well... Yeah. Yeah, and, and so I, I, I like how you put that together, our symbiotic relationship, and, and how cool is that? Uh, basically make, taking three components and making beautiful music together, right? It's like, uh, yeah, yeah, each, yeah, each one cool in its own part. But, and then, then I imagine it becomes addictive for somebody like you going, what haven't I used? And, oh, man, I need to use this and use that. And, yeah. oh, man, and you can never catch up out there harvesting, I'm sure. And, uh, yeah, you and, know. and you can never get the same thing twice because just like, I mentioned with these metals, right? As a plant goes through the growing season, it has um, different, and this is how herbalists think about herbal medicine as well, like when they harvest certain plants. But as a plant goes throughout the growing season and the sun changes and the water changes and the plant is in a different phase of its maturity, if it's flowered or not, right? The, the balance of any component in a leaf changes. So you could harvest one plant in July and harvest the same plant later in August, and you could possibly, you know, get a different, slightly different shade on a piece of fabric, you wow. know, which is like, wow. do I take the time to test swatch that? No. Right. But like, you could, right? <laughs> yeah. Like, I have to say no to a lot of things in my life now. Like, yeah, in other words, 
uh, yeah. in other words, I'm here. It's now. I'm getting you. You know, because I yeah. got time. Uh, so yeah. uh, you know, it, it might be a little darker color later on in August, but I'm here and it's now, and I have time. So I'm yeah, gonna, yeah. gotcha. As my, as my mentor, I have a mentor down in North Carolina, uh, Martha Owens, um, and she's she's real she's real strong in the tradition and the Appalachian tradition. And she the way she words it, I just love. She's got sheep, she's got grandkids. You know, she's running all over the place. She's a folk musician, and she says, "Today's the day." You know, that's yes. kind of how it is, right? <laughs> Today, if you've got the time, you just make it happen. And so that's, and today's the day to pick the miracles. It's the best day to pick the miracles. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, and uh, I'll, I'll take a break here in a bit, uh, and then when we come back, let's talk about some of the plants uh, you can uh, grow for natural dyes right in your own backyard because, yeah, time is precious, and uh, if you have to drive five miles to, to wild collect something, fine, but uh, how cool having something right in your backyard so when the timing is right, well, you're there to to. to to get it and you don't have to go a long ways to get it and it's right under your nose absolutely absolutely um, all right leslie yeah, time. yeah go. i'm gonna go ahead and take a break and uh so it'll be a little bit there and then when we come back let's talk about some some plants that people should put in their garden for natural dyes okay sounds great all right, thanks, Leslie. All right, that's Leslie Darling, Leslie Darling Fibers. Uh, enjoying the conversation with her. Hopefully you are as well. We'll be back after some brief messages right here at KZUM Lincoln. You're listening to How's It Growing? All sorts of great live music happening this week in Lincoln, including last night as Jazz in June I was rounded up for another year. Oh, my, oh, my, was it a great show. Uh, man, uh, so kudos to all of those involved with Jazz in June. Good stuff, Maynard. Uh, we'll be seeing you back next year, Jazz in June. Thank you so much for putting it on and KZUM for sponsoring it. Uh, good work, team. All right, I have Leslie Darling on the program today. Leslie Darling Fibers. We're talking with Leslie about all great things, including nettles. We even had time to put that in. So, <laughs> Leslie, I thank you again for your time and and uh, your inspiration to to me and all the listeners. So, so I appreciate the great work you do and all the, the great information you provide people that do sign up for your workshop. So, so tell our listeners, uh, before we get started on some of the plants, um, mm -hmm. if, they, if they're interested in a class, um, how, how would they go about finding out, first of all, what you teach and, uh, and, and how to sign up for it? Absolutely. Thanks, Bob. So um, I, teach, um, I teach online workshops. If you're streaming this program from Not Lincoln, you are still able to sign up for one of my classes. Um, I teach online workshops. I teach with the Vestheim um, American Norwegian Museum in Iowa, with the American Swedish Institute in Minneapolis. And um, you can usually find a list of my classes on either Instagram, uh, Leslie Darling Fiber. If you're listening, you say, well, I don't use Instagram. I do have an email sign-up on my website, and um, I send out updates on when I'm going to be teaching classes. I do also teach local classes occasionally, um, and I teach private workshops as well. So if you're like in the Lincoln area and you want to learn how to spin yarn or you want to have a little dye workshop with some of your friends for a birthday party or a shower or anything like that, 
um, I do provide um, everything you need to do, like events like that as well. So uh, they don't all get as scientific and nerdy as our conversations. Yeah, I love so, it. <laughs> you know, we go. I kind of, uh, I kind of balance the level of, of the appropriate plant nerdiness for the audience. So if if you're into the nerdy side of this, but you're also kind of like my friends, probably just going to make something pretty. <laughs> right. We can make it work. Right? <laughs> I love you know, it. it goes, it goes all, all across the gamut, so I'm, it's a real it's a real treat for me to get to get into the nitty gritty sometimes. <laughs> that is that's a fun way to put it. It's like I don't care yeah. about all the different plants. I just want to make something pretty, you know. It's like, and so you yeah. kind of gauge your audience, like, okay, this is a plant nerd. I'm gonna go I'm gonna go gangbuster on you. Well, okay, yeah. so you're probably we're talk, probably talking to a little of both here today. So we we Absolutely. we got your genuine plant nerds listening for sure. And then others that say, I just want to make something pretty. So we'll try to balance that out. So, so again, uh, so let's talk first. I, I know we can talk about some native dye plants or plants maybe you can find out in the wild, or but we can also grow native plants in our own backyard. So maybe kind of throw a few in there, uh, like plants, like you're thinking, all right, here's some great plants folks can grow for for natural dyes easy right uh simple right yep, um, absolutely yeah so let, let's yeah. talk about a few of those yeah so um there are so many plants that grow very well in our yards whether or not they're native that are fantastic natural dyes i've mentioned marigolds a couple times mm-hmm. and marigolds which so many of us love to have make a really great natural dye um, I'll talk about how to harvest these in just a second here, but I'm going to just list off some plants. Um, any type of coreopsis mm. that you're growing, um, even aster or mm. um, uh, fleabane, daisy fleabane. Really? Um, some of us have that in our pollinator gardens. Um, just about any flowering plant, a lot of our local flowering plants will produce a yellow dye. So even if something doesn't look yellow, chances are it's going to make a yellow dye. Mm. And you look out in the natural world and you say, well, what color is that going to be? What, it's probably going to be yellow. That's kind of my um, my joke is if, if you look at a plant and point at it and say, what color will that make? It, the answer is probably yellow. Yeah, it's going to be yellow. Um, <laughs> it's going to be yellow. And that has to do with the fact that all of these plants have flavonoids in them, which is what a dye is... Um, it is a flavonoid. So, okay. um, so I really like working with marigolds because they produce a super bright color and they're also a natural mosquito repellent. So if you've got a mm. lot of mosquitoes, you just put some marigolds and containers around your yard. They don't, they don't love that kind of subtle aroma of marigolds. Um, and they're just like a crowd pleaser, right? You can see them anywhere. So, yeah. um, the way I would harvest any dye and you can do this, whether or not you're, um, ready to dive completely in yet, but you're like, well, I've got these marigolds and you're going around and you're about to deadhead any of your plants. So you can um, just pop off the, mar- the, the flower, right before, you know, kind of before it looks its saddest and you can throw it in the freezer or mm. you can dry it out and save it for later to okay. dye with. The same would go for any type of a coreopsis, um, uh, with asters, I kind of use the whole top half of the plant. The leaves will also produce a yellow. Mm. But you can grow these plants and you can also harvest them and figure out how to use them later. You don't have to use them right away. Um, so that's, kind of a, that's like the, sh- the very short list of some of my favorites. Um, some cool. folks who are interested in um, like biennial plants, 
Um, some hollyhocks will make a nice natural mm. dye, um, especially the really dark ones. So I grow black hollyhock, mm, mm-hmm. um, but any like really, really, really dark red hollyhock or even those black specialty hollyhocks, those also make a really exciting natural dye. Um, cool. And those are my favorite. There's another one that's coming. I'll just throw in one more because sure. it has been growing in popularity the last couple of years is the black night scabiosa or a black pincushion flower oh. it's a very 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 dark purple and that has been kind of trending recently in um both floral arrangements and bouquets um as well as in home gardening um so i've seen like harvest home flowers and waverly has been growing that and some other folks have kind of been starting to put those at home and cosmos sorry one oh, last one okay cosmos, cosmos okay you have cosmos those flowers are really gorgeous, gorgeous natural dye. So I'll keep it to that for now. Right? And yeah. Those, you're like, what color are those? Aside from the hollyhocks, they're all going to make a variety of like beautiful yellows, golds, oranges, because um, that is the most abundant color that we have, natural color that occurs in in the natural world. So yeah, that's really cool. Yeah. And so I'm curious, like if I'm if I'm harvesting my marigold or coreopsis, you know, do I do I need to? I'm assuming I don't pull the petals free of the uh, the little round what green calyx that's great, holding all the petals great together. Question. No, yeah, you can just take the whole the whole flower, including that green. The green parts will turn yellow in the okay. dye bath. Gotcha. gotcha. Wild, right? It won't mess anything up. People, that blows people's minds sometimes. But yeah, just harvest the easy. You won't mess it up. Is essentially <laughs> right. <laughs> you cool. Can't mess it up. And can I assume calendula is another one that you can uh, use, much like the marigold, or yes. not? Yes, calendula also has a very good. Um, it can be used as a natural dye. You know, it's one of those plants that if I have the option of choosing calendula for medicine or for a natural dye, yeah. I'll probably choose it for medicine, but it works absolutely the That's same. That's great. I, I, that's funny you should say that because I, I I even kind of questioned going should I even bring it up because I'm like going man I'm sorry I'm sorry Leslie I'm not going to lo- use my calendula for dye uh, I grew all this calendula for medicine so I can literally go out there nightly now because I kept pinching the plants back you know as they were growing yeah, early yeah. in the spring you know from from the greenhouse to home you know and they get a little tall mm-hmm. leggy to start well I'm like all right you're not blooming yet it's going to pay off down the road I keep pinching your buds off and making you branch and give me a, a shorter bushier plant well that paid off now i'm like a calendula coming out of my ears they're like every night i can go out there and pinch off at least a dozen flowers and which is kind of like going really but i want to see the full show you know too bad yeah i'm cutting you off yeah yeah you're my medicine what i I, yeah what (laughs) i typically do and this actually this is a good good point too with um when i'm harvesting for dyes what i like to do is i like to let the flower or even for medicine i mean depending Uh i like to let the flower be open for a day or two just to give those pollinators a chance to get in there right yeah so um you don't have to harvest it like immediately when it's open sometimes i i do harvest Again, today's the day, right? If today's the day, yeah. today's the moment. I'll pick some marigolds that are like could be more open, but ultimately, you know, it's fine to let them wait. Um, so I like to try to let the insects and critters get a chance to do what they want to do with the plants as well before I go, um, you know, take everything. So I like because um, it is a relationship. I try not to take everything. <laughs> I like to leave, you know, as many people listening to the show, we hear, I'm, you know, I know you cover this a lot. You know, we, we, we work together with the plant. And so we take a little bit and we leave a little bit and we, you know, we, we're not, we're not there to just like, 
especially the way I work with dye plants, is I'm not trying to just take everything from the plant, you yeah, know? Right. <laughs> like, that's, not, yeah. that's not the right energy. <laughs> exactly. As humans tend to be gluttons and, and make sure you thank the plant too, you know? Uh, you can do Absolutely. that. You can say, you can literally say thank you very much. And, um, you know, and I'm curious, you'd mentioned daisy fleabane. Now that's one I definitely wouldn't have thought of. And folks, if you're wondering what does daisy fleabane look like, just Google it right now and you'll see, oh, I've had that in my yard. It'll just kind of show up um, rather than you planting it. And, but it's a cool plant and oftentimes people get scared of it because it, you know, on open ground, you're going to have a lot of daisy fleabane. But, uh, you know, if you have a, a garden full of plants, you might have one show up here and there. And what do you do about it? Well, you leave it and you allow it to reseed other areas. So you get little surprises like, oh, cool. What is that flower rising above everybody else? That's a little daisy fleabane. And it's so cute and tough, but, but it makes a natural dye too, huh? Yeah, yeah, it's um, it doesn't look like it would. Yeah, it, it has little white petals, but the whole the, the 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 place where the dye is in the plant doesn't have to just be in the flower, right? So, those flavonoids, which where where the yellow dye is, mm -hmm. they're in the flowers and they're in the leaves um, of a lot of those plants. So, um, you know, I'll, I'll try to leave it at that. But yeah. just because you don't see the yellow doesn't mean it's not there, which gotcha. is exciting. Gotcha. Um, yeah. Um, you know, and now I'm going to say like chamomile is another one of those plants where oh. you could choose to use it for tea mm -hmm. or choose to use it for dye. It's kind of in that category. If you've harvested enough tea for the year, you have some uh -huh. leftover, you could consider, um, consider using that as a dye and the, those all make yellows. Um, but I wanted to um, also mention some of the other plants that are maybe less convenient to grow, but maybe you already have them. Um, they could be foraged. Maybe somebody on your street has them. And these are um, kind of less sexy. They're a little less sexy colors, but they're ones that have. I like to I like talk about sexy dye colors and kind of boring dye colors. Yes. You know, like, and in Nebraska, what we have that makes, you know, yellow is kind of the best we can, like you're going to, conveniently be able to grow. You can grow other colors in Nebraska, but I don't want to get too far down that road. If you're uh -huh. really curious about indigo or matter or one of these specialty dye plants, uh -huh. you can get in touch with me. But gotcha. um, So I harvest a lot of um, sumac um, because sumac is really rich in tannins. Mm. And tannins are very, any plant that you know of that has a lot of tannins um, is a very uh, helpful plant for natural dyes. And um, so sumac um, is really is one of my favorite plants to harvest, and I'll just harvest those whole compound leaves. And I, when you mix them with like rust water, like you can take rusty nails, soak them in water, and create you know rusty water. And when you mix a tannin with rust, it turns this beautiful kind of gray black color. Wow! And that is how ink is traditionally made. So huh. oak balls. If you have others, like one tree I just walked past recently, I was doing some landscaping for somebody, and I was like, oh, these, this is a yard with oak galls, right? And I'm uh, yeah. go back there and <laughs> fall kind of awkwardly, and maybe maybe I'll knock on their door first and ask. But, you know, if you have a lot of oak galls falling from one of your trees, like oak galls are what traditional ink is made from. They grind uh, up the oak galls. No kidding. They make a little bit of tea, and they add rust. Yeah, you know, I mean, like, it, it was everywhere. This, this is why I started talking about it. It's everywhere, right? It's everything we used to use made out of plants. Ah. So oak galls and sumac. Um, and that's an easier plant maybe if you're kind of like curious to like try something at home without like a full recipe. 
make some really rusty water with whatever random objects you have lying around and basically make a tea out of sumac, throw your fabric in it, and then put it in this rusty water and you'll have a really kind of cool lavender gray to darker gray color. Um, so that's one plant that I use, I work with a lot and I just love how sumac smells. Um, you could also use like, if you have like, if you're cutting back raspberry bushes, you have too many leaves on your raspberries, those have mm. really high tannin content. Mm. And you know, the more, as many people listening to this show understand, cause we're, like I said, the kind of plant nerds here. And for those of you who are becoming plant nerds, yes. um, the more you work with different plants, you start to just, um, intuitively notice similarities. So I used to make raspberry leaf tea because it's the you know medicinal properties, and I would I noticed when I cooked it there's this smell. Mm. I'm like, oh, that's a really nice smell. And then when I started working with sumac and I cooked with sumac, I'm like, that's the same smell. Mm. And then I found out from um, Molly Moorhead, who's a local herbalist, she's like, well, they both have really high tannin content. And I was like, oh, ah. you know, so, <laughs> cool. So you know, kind of, you know, if you have a if you have a sense of plants. Um, you know, don't be afraid to lean on that intuition a little bit is kind of the, the method here. Um, yeah. And, and couple, Leslie, yeah. I'm, uh, just one quick, I'm, I'm assuming when you, when you first said sumac, my, my mind went right away to the seed heads, the bright red seed heads. No, oh, right? Yeah. yeah, I'm talking about the leaves yeah. right now. So the, the leaves have a really high tannin content and the, the berries can be used Um to kind of create a reddish dye. It's mm-hmm. not a strong dye, and I'm sure you'll talk about later this season um, how you can make a beverage using yeah. sumac. So I'll, I'll not go into that right now. Right. But, you know, <laughs> um, shortest hour. Um, you know, so um, the, the whole sumac plant, and this is like just a tidbit. Um, uh, sumac has a really long history of being used, um, especially in the plains, as an agent for tanning hides mm. and hide tanning. I'm a fiber artist, which means I've unfortunately done like just about everything you can do. <laughs> and, um, you know, from having the rabbit, from having an angora rabbit to spinning cotton to yes. tanning sheep hides. And so um, the word tannin, the same word we talk about in wine, in tea, it comes from the German word um, like tannenbaum, uh-huh. which relates back to, to um, you know, Latin because all of the plants like a tannin balm, like a, uh, a, a fir, you know, whatever, plant Christmas tree, uh-huh. the bark has a really high tannin content. So it was historically used for high tanning. And so when you think about high tanning, and then you think about the word tannin, they come from the same base because it's that same um, uh, presence of tannins in the plants that's used in all of those categories. So, it, you know, anyways, it never ends, cool. right? Once you get curious <laughs> about something, it never ends. Um, but anything you need to be high in tannin will have a nice um, reaction with rust water and creates a really strong natural dye or ink, possibly. So cool. a lot of people make a black walnut ink as well. Okay. Um, I'm going to try to keep, I'm going to try to get the, not go crazy with the plant list because it never ends. <laughs> Everything, right? It never right. ends. <laughs> well, my friend Jill, if she's listening, Jill, I know she uses the uh, the husks of walnut. So I was going to ask you about that if you've ever used. It. And I think she waits until the the as they drop off the tree or whatever, and they're turning yellow rather than hard. You could get them green, I'm assuming, but yellow. And I'm also curious. So if you would talk about walnut a little bit or the husks, if you use those, and then as well, um, what about uh, like fruits? Like for example, I'm thinking of the things that seriously stain your fingers or whatever. You got mold 
mulberry, yes. you've got elderberry, you've got aronia, you've got pokeberry, which is a weed in a lot of people's yards, but it has also called inkberry. And I'm curious if, if poke, the poke salad folks, and, and, and hopefully you know the song or remember the song. And if you don't, check out the lyrics on poke salad, Annie. You gotta, you gotta check it out. But anyway, <laughs> I'm curious if inkberry or poke you, you have ever used or any other berry for a natural dye. Absolutely. This is a fantastic question. Um, and I was talking myself into it just a second ago, so I'm glad you brought it up. Um, so I, for, for a home dyer, for like somebody at home right now who's thinking of experimenting and playing around, or if you have like grandkids and you just want to have fun, yeah, you know, finding wild mulberries or working with pokeberry is absolutely, you know, doable. Cool. Um, I, I am not, um, because I make things to like sell to people, for example, um, or because I make things where I'm really thinking about the longevity of a dye color, mm -hmm. I never use those professionally because, you know, I want to make something that's going to last a really long time. And so gotcha. what you run into with mulberry and with just about any other kind of berry um, that has um, kind of a purplish coloring, including pokeberry, um, or blueberries, they just are not very light fast. And so you get this really beautiful purple for a minute and then it's going to fade very quickly. And so I don't use those um, like professionally, but they're absolutely a fine thing to use at home for fun. Um, cool. So if you feel like experimenting with that, absolutely go for it. Um, and, you know, what we need, how long we want a color to last for is totally dependent on, you know, what you're doing with it. And in the old days, you know, Pokeberry got a reputation for Inkberry because you you needed to use what you had, for example. Uh, uh -huh. and you might look at some, like, a, if a journal was written literally with Pokeberry ink, you might not be able to read it anymore. You know, like, that's, right. that's, that's, <laughs> it's probably completely faded, even if it's been closed. It's completely faded, but... um so those are kind of fun for like, I like to say, if you're like doing something with grandkids or, you know, just whatever, it can be fun. Throw them in a pot, cook them, throw some fabric in, you know, and it's going to go away, but that's fine. It was fun. Yeah. Yeah. Learning experience. Right. And, sure. um, you know, walnuts, we could have a whole show on one of my, <laughs> one of my students, Naira was just asking if I was going to teach a class just about walnuts. And I was like, you know, I don't think I need to <laughs> like, just because, because, because they are really beautiful, um, and kind of self-explanatory. I think we're a little more familiar with them. And yeah, you can harvest walnuts when they fall to the ground. Um, I use a separate, always use a se I always use a separate pot for dyeing in. Mm -hmm. um, I don't use my kitchen pots just <laughs> for you know, basic, basic protocol that I do. Um, and you just essentially any natural dye extraction. This is the same for those marigolds or whatever. You're just making like a tea or a soup. So you throw the the walnut husks in there. I use the whole walnut. I don't bother to husk the walnut because okay. I don't have time for that. <laughs> you know, You're right. Like, or I'll freeze them, I'll <laughs> freeze them or dry them and save uh -huh. them for later in the year. And I just throw them in a pot, you know, put them on a simmer. And you'll see when the, when the water gets really dark, right? And then you, with walnut is a special plant because you can just throw the fabric in there. And it has all of the stuff needed to make it stick to the fabric. Uh -huh. So that's one of the reasons walnut is very accessible. Um, there's a couple other plants I might try to throw out here real quick, just that, about, that will stick without it. Turmeric, um, the spice, 
sticks without anything else, and so do like onion skins, red oh, and yellow onion skins. Cool. So if you're like, this sounds fun, but I'm not sure about all the rest of it, turmeric onion skins and black walnuts will get you some natural dye experience without needing to get too complicated. But um, I love working with walnut on its own. It makes this kind of rosy um, brown color that you would expect. And then if you add rust water to it, it makes this really delicious um, like grayish black color, even more so than the sumac. Um, cool. So, and I have, um, oh my gosh, we're about to end an hour already. So I want to um, point everyone who's listening in a very exciting direction to show you some examples of this. So um, I recently did a really fantastic collaboration with um, the National Audubon Society and Spring Creek Prairie and an environmental um, activist named Patagonia. And this has been like a two-year project. Um, Patagonia is a drag artist who's originally from Lincoln, and now she lives in Bend, Oregon. And we made this gorgeous, massive meadowlark dress. Um, cool. I know, this is like totally crazy. I was like, what is going on right here? But... Um, the whole costume was dyed with plants grown here in LinkedIn. Wow. So we used Osage, all the marigolds I grow, and my dad grows marigolds, Osage, um, to get this like meadowlark yellow dress. Yes. Um, and then the wings were dyed exclusively with black walnuts and, um, and that rust water. So if you're curious about um, that, uh, there's some fantastic photos. This is like a three-person videographer team from New York City from the National Audubon Society who flew in to really? Little Denton, Nebraska. Yeah. Wow. this project um, because Jason, the burger, Jason Burger yeah. on the show, started this really cool program called Let's Go Birding Together, which is just about um, everybody being welcome in the outdoors and learning about birds together in an inclusive space. So it was just this really... Um, you know, synchronistic experience that we had been, uh, I'd been working on this project with this drag artist and then, you know, he's from Lincoln and then Chase, the program's from Lincoln. Anyways, it all came together. So if you're curious wow. to see what these guys look like and also see some really gorgeous photos of Spring Creek Prairie, you can go to audubon.org slash Patagonia. That's P-A-T-T-I-E G-O-N-I-A, or you can just search, um, you know, Spring Creek Prairie or Patagonia, and it will come up on there. But um, cool. that's a really cool example of, like, all Nebraska colors, all native Nebraska um, colors being used in um, a kind of art piece to show, you know, Nebraska birds, Nebraska plants. It was really fun. That, so, is, that anyways, is really cool. So um, I wanted to make sure I got that in here this hour. Oh, man, I'm glad you did. I'm glad you did. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and, and picking on our state bird, too. How cool is that? So native flowers yeah. uh, grown here in Nebraska, Spring Creek Prairie. Good work, Leslie. That's great. Well, I am yeah. out of time in this fastest hour in radio, unfortunately. I wish we could Absolutely. talk more, but I'll have you back on again. And we just have to decide, shoot, Leslie, how, how often can I have you on? But <laughs> You know, we we could do a whole show on walnuts, given its medicinal properties as well as its natural dyeing oh, properties. Yeah. We could oh, do yeah. a whole show on nettles. So I'll be hitting you up, kid. So you just, uh, I just uh, really appreciate your time and, and your passion for what you do and, and turning us all on to the world of natural dyes, uh, going back 30,000 years in the making. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And if anyone has any follow-up questions, please feel free to either get in touch with Bob 
um, or look up my website because, you know, if this is piquing your interest, you know, I have resources to help you get get further along the path. So happy to share those. Excellent. And uh, Leslie Darling, that is L-E-S-L-I-E rather than L-E-Y in case you're wondering, folks, right? Uh, L-E-Y, backwards, yeah, L-E-S-L-E-Y, there you go, yeah. All right, very good. All right, thank you so much, Leslie. You have a great day and the great rest of your week, and happy July 4th to you. The same, thanks, Bob. All right, thank you, bye-bye. All right, Leslie Darling Fiber, check it out online. Great show with Leslie, hope you enjoyed it. I'll see you back here next week after the 4th. Don't blow your finger off, okay? (laughs) All right, have a great week. I'll see you next week, bye. Mitch McConnell. The sour old goose who heads the Senate Republican Caucus had a hissy fit when the news leaked out that American women are about to have their most fundamental constitutional right taken from them by a cabal of Supreme Court judges. What made Mitch twitch, of course, was not the bad news for women, but the leak. He huffed that revealing the right-wing court scheme to the public was a stunning breach, spewing that it's an attack on the independence of the Supreme Court. Uh, Mitch, the... So-called Supremes have been meeting behind closed doors specifically to plot an all-out attack on the independence of some 170 million women to control their own bodies. Why aren't you opposing the secrecy rather than supporting the court's subversion of women's liberty? Perversely, the entire Republican leadership is outraged by the leak rather than the attack on women. Right-wing blowhard Ted Cruz, for example, yapped that informing the public, quote, will do lasting damage to the integrity of the court. Uh, Ted, you and your ideological ilk annihilated the court's integrity and its legitimacy when you stacked it with a covey of corporate-coddling partisan hacks like Alito, Barrett, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Thomas. Then came Senator Mike Lee of Utah, a Trump acolyte, ludicrously blathering that the leak of the judicial plan is despicable. Why? Well, he explained to us commoners, the court, quote, is not a political body. If ignorance is bliss, Mike must be ecstatic. The GOP majority on this court is so immersed in its own partisan biases that it is routinely ruling against workers, the environment, women, voting rights, local communities, and democracy itself. This is Jim Hightower saying, no surprise then that the public trust in the integrity of these arbiters of justice is crashing. If the court won't respect our democratic ideals, the people won't respect the court. The Hightower Radio Lowdown is brought to you by the Lowdown Happy Hour, live streamed from the Chat and Chew Cafe. Details at HightowerLowdown.org. This is your friend Charlie Burton, and you are now listening to KZUM Lincoln and KZUM HD. Support for KZUM comes from Filament Essential Services, a Lincoln nonprofit committed to helping other nonprofits fulfill their mission, with services including website development, branding and video production, payroll and bookkeeping, tech support, and data security. Find out more at filamentservices.org. From New York, this is Democracy Now! So as the president had gotten into the vehicle with Bobby, he thought that they were going up to the Capitol, and when Bobby had relayed to him, we're not, we don't have the assets to do it, it's not secure, we're going back to the West Wing. The president reached up towards the front of the vehicle to grab at the steering wheel. 
Mr. Engel grabbed his arm, said, sir, you need to take your hand off the steering wheel. We're going back to the West Wing. We're not going to the Capitol. Mr. Trump then used his free hand to lunge towards Bobby Angle. And Mr. when Mr. Renato had recounted this story to me, he had motioned towards his clavicles. Former White House aide Cassidy Hutchinson accuses Donald Trump of attacking his own presidential Secret Service agent on January 6th after he refused to drive Trump to the Capitol to join the armed mob gathering to block Congress from continuing the 2020 election results. We'll bring you highlights of the dramatic testimony before the House January 6th committee when she also reveals Trump urged security officials to stop using magnetometers to screen for weapons just prior to the violent attack on the Capitol, and that Chief of Staff Mark Meadows and Ruli Giuliani both sought pardons after the insurrection. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. An explosive testimony of former White House aide accused Donald Trump of attacking his own presidential security detail on January 6th after the Secret Service refused to drive him to the Capitol to join the armed mob gathering to block Congress from counting electoral college votes. The testimony came from Cassidy Hutchison, a former top aide to White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows. Speaking to the January 6th House Committee, Hutchinson described being being told what happened inside Trump's presidential limo, which is known as the Beast. The president reached up towards the front of the vehicle to grab at the steering wheel. Mr. Engel grabbed his arm, said, sir, you need to take your hand off the steering wheel. We're going back to the West Wing. We're not going to the Capitol. Mr. Trump then used his free hand to lunge towards Bobby Engel. And when Mr. Renato had recounted this story to me, he had motioned towards his clavicles. The January 6th committee also aired video testimony from Hutchinson, where she revealed Trump urged security officials to stop using magnetometers to screen for weapons at his rally on January 6th, just prior to the Capitol insurrection. I was in the vicinity of a conversation where I overheard the president say something to the effect of, you know, I, I don't I think care that they have weapons. They're not here to hurt me. Take the effing bags away. Let my people in. They can march to the Capitol from here. Let the people in. Take the effing mags away. Moments later, Trump took to the stage and urged his supporters to fight like hell and march to the Capitol. Hutchinson also unveiled more details about how top Trump associates knew in advance of possible violence January 6th. Mark Meadows, who's refused to testify before the House committee, told Hutchinson on January 2nd, January 6th, would be really, really bad. Hutchinson said Meadows and Trump attorney Rudy Giuliani later sought pardons after the insurrection. At the end of the Tuesday hearing, committee vice chair Liz Cheney presented evidence of possible witness tampering by Trump allies. We'll have more on Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony after headlines. In Texas, the number of people who died after being confined inside a sweltering tractor trailer in San Antonio has risen to 51. All the victims are believed to have crossed the U.S.-Mexico border seeking refuge. 46 people were found dead in the truck Monday, while five more died after being taken to local hospitals. On Tuesday, the Mexican president, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, addressed the mass deaths. Quiero expresar 
I want to express my deepest condolences to the family of the Mexican, Guatemalan and Honduran migrants who died yesterday, asphyxiated in a trailer. It is a tremendous disgrace. These unfortunate events have to do with the situation of poverty and desperation of our Central American and Mexican brothers and sisters. It happens because there is also human trafficking and lack of controls at the border between Mexico and the United States and in the United States. In other news from Texas, a state court has temporarily blocked a century-old abortion ban from going into effect. The Center for Reproductive Rights said the decision will allow abortion services in Texas to resume at some clinics, at least for now. At a NATO summit in Madrid, Spain, President Biden's announced plans to greatly expand the U.S. military presence in Europe, including building a permanent headquarters for the U.S. Fifth Army Corps in Poland and deploying more troops to Romania and the Baltic region. Biden said this is part of a broader NATO expansion. And together, our allies, we're going to make up sure that NATO is ready to meet threats from all directions across every domain, land, air and the sea. This comes as Finland and Sweden move closer to joining NATO after Turkey lifted its opposition to their membership. NATO's summit is expected to focus on Russia's invasion of Ukraine as well as the growing power of China. For the first time, NATO has invited the leaders of Japan, South Korea, Australia and New Zealand to attend a NATO summit. Voters went to the polls for primaries in Colorado, Illinois, Maryland, New York, Oklahoma and Utah Tuesday. Runoff elections were also held in Mississippi and South Korea. In New York, Governor Kathy Hochul won the Democratic primary with New York City public advocate Jamani Williams placing second. In Illinois, the Trump-backed Republican Congress member Mary Miller defeated fellow incumbent Rodney Davis. Miller's election comes just days after she praised the Supreme Court's ruling overturning Roe as a victory for white life, unquote. In Colorado, far-right Republican Congressmember Lauren Boebert, who also endorsed by, was endorsed by Trump, fended off a challenge from a more moderate Republican. On Sunday, she spoke at a church in Colorado where she criticized the separation of church and state. The church is supposed to direct the government. The government is not supposed to direct the church. That is not how our founding fathers intended it. And I'm tired of this separation of church and state junk that's not in the Constitution. It was in a stinking letter and it means nothing like what they say it does. In related news, the Supreme Court ruled Monday against a public school district in Washington state that suspended a high school football coach who insisted on conducting team prayers on the field after games. In their dissent, the court's three liberal judges warned that the ruling, quote, strikes at the core of our constitutional protections for the religious liberty of students and their parents. Meanwhile, the Supreme Court's reinstated a Republican-drawn congressional map in Louisiana that was found by a lower court to violate the Voting Rights Act by diluting the political strength of black voters. Michigan's Supreme Court has thrown out charges against former Michigan Governor Rick Snyder, his former health director and seven other former officials for their role in the deadly Flint, Michigan water crisis. The court ruled six to zero. The judge who issued the indictments did not have the authority to do so. 
Colombia's Truth Commission has estimated over 450,000 people were killed in Colombia between 1985 and 2018 during a time when the United States was a key backer of the Colombian military and right-wing paramilitaries, which targeted leftist groups, social justice leaders and union members. The Truth Commission's report denounced the U.S.-funded war on drugs in Colombia, stating, quote, the consequences of this concerted and largely U.S.-driven approach led to a hardening of the conflict in which the civilian population has been the main victim, unquote. This is Reverend Francisco DeRue, who led the Truth Commission. To the government, public forces, political parties, entrepreneurs, churches, educators, and other decision makers in Colombia, we ask you to recognize the drug trafficking penetration in our culture, in the state, politics, and economy, and face it as a nation. We must develop investigative tools to face the alliances, system and involved interests. And we must change the war politics that attack those who are the weakest link, the farmers. In more news from Colombia, at least 51 people were killed and over two dozen others injured Tuesday in a prison fire that started after prisoners set mattresses ablaze to protest conditions inside the dangerously overcrowded facility in the Cauca Valley. The building is old and reportedly did not have a working fire suppression system. In the Philippines, the independent news outlet Rappler has been ordered to be shut down by the Philippine Securities and Exchange Commission. Rappler's founder, the Nobel Peace Laureate Maria Ressa, has vowed to fight the order, which comes in the final days of Rodrigo Duterte's presidency. On Thursday, Ferdinand Marcos Jr., the son of the late Filipino dictator, will be inaugurated as president. And a warning to our audience, the following headline contains graphic description of sexual abuse. The British socialite Ghislaine Maxwell has been sentenced to 20 years in prison for helping Jeffrey Epstein recruit and sexually assault teenage girls. In December, she was convicted on five charges, including sex trafficking of a minor. Prior to the sentencing, Sarah Ransom, a survivor of Epstein's abuse, spoke to reporters. I spent the last 17 years in my own prison for what she, Jeffrey, and all the co-conspirators did to me. I was raped repeatedly. I was raped three times a day sometimes. And I was not the only girl on that island. There was a constant stream of girls being raped over and over and over again. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Bombshell after bombshell. That's how Public Citizen described the dramatic testimony at Tuesday's surprise hearing of the House Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack on the United States Capitol. The star witness, Cassidy Hutchinson, longtime close aide of Mark Meadows, the former President Trump White House chief of staff at the time of the insurrection. Hutchinson was questioned for about two hours by the Republican vice chair of the committee, Liz Cheney, and clips from Hutchinson's previous testimony to the committee were all also featured her deposition testimony. Today, we bring you extended highlights of the explosive revelations. This is Vice Chair Cheney. We uh, will begin today with an exchange that first provided Ms. Hutchinson a tangible sense of the ongoing planning for the events of January 6th. On January 2nd, four days before the attack on our Capitol, President Trump's lead lawyer, Mr. Giuliani, was meeting with White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows and others. Ms. Hutchinson, do you remember Mr. Giuliani meeting with Mr. Meadows on January 2nd, 2021? I do. He met with Mr. Meadows in the evening of January 2nd, 2021. 
And we understand that you walked Mr. Giuliani out of the White House that night. Um, and he talks to you about January 6th. What do you remember him saying? As Mr. Giuliani and I were walking to his vehicles that evening, he looked at me and said something to the effect of, Cass, are you excited for the 6th? It's going to be a great day. I remember looking at him saying, Rudy, could you explain what's, what's happening on the 6th? Uh, he, he had responded something to the effect of, we're going to the Capitol. It's going to be great. The president's going to be there. He's going to look powerful. He's, he's going to be with the members. He's going to be with the senators. Talk to the chief about it. Talk to the chief about it. He knows about it. And did you go back uh, then up to the West Wing and tell Mr. Meadows about your conversation with Mr. Giuliani? I did. After Mr. Giuliani had left the campus that evening, I went back up to our office and I found Mr. Meadows in his office on the couch. He was scrolling through his phone. I remember leaning against the doorway and saying, I had an interesting conversation with Rudy, Mark. It sounds like we're going to go to the Capitol. He didn't look up from his phone and said something to the effect of, there's a lot going on, Cass, but I don't know. Things might get real, real bad on January 6th. Uh, Ms. Hutchinson, Mr. Meadows is engaged in litigation with the committee to try to avoid testifying here. Um, what, what was your reaction when he said to you things might get real, real bad? In the days before January 2nd, I was apprehensive about the 6th. I had heard general plans for a rally. Uh, I had heard tentative movements to potentially go to the Capitol. But when hearing Rudy's take on January 6th and then Mark's response, that was the first, that evening was the first moment that I remember feeling scared and nervous for what could happen on January 6th. And I had a deeper concern for what was happening with the planning aspects of it. Thank you, Ms. Hutchinson. Today, we're going to be focusing primarily on the events of January 5th and 6th at the White House. Uh, but to begin and to frame the discussion, I want to uh, talk about a conversation that you had with Mr. John Ratcliffe the Director of National Intelligence. And uh, you had this conversation in December of 2020. Mr. Ratcliffe was nominated by President Trump uh, to oversee U.S. intelligence, uh, our U.S. intelligence community. Uh, and before his appointment, Mr. Ratcliffe was a Republican member of Congress. As you will see on this clip, Director Ratcliffe's comments in December of 2020 were prescient. My understanding was Mr. Rat Director Ratcliffe didn't want much to do with the post-election period. Director Ratcliffe felt that it wasn't something that the White House should be pursuing. It felt it was dangerous for the president's legacy. He expressed to me that he was concerned that it could spiral out of control and potentially be dangerous either for our democracy or the way that things were going for the sex. When you say it wasn't something the way that I should be what's the event? Trying to fight the results of the election finding missing ballots, pressuring
lawsuits in certain states where there didn't seem to be significant evidence and reaching out to state legislatures about that. So pretty much the way that the White House was handling the post-election period, he felt that there could be dangerous repercussions in terms of precedent set for elections for democracy for the six. You know, he was hoping that we would concede. So, Ms. Hutchinson, uh, now we're going to turn to certain information that was available before January 4th and what the Trump administration and the president knew about the potential for violence before January 6th. On the screen, you will see an email received by Acting Deputy Attorney General Donahue on January 4th from the National Security Division of the Department of Justice. Mr. Donahue testified in our hearings last week. The email identifies apparent planning by those coming to Washington on January 6th to, quote, occupy federal buildings and discussions of, quote, invading the Capitol building. Here's what Mr. Donahue said to us. And we knew that if you have tens of thousands of very upset people showing up in Washington, D.C., that there was potential for violence. The U.S. Secret Service was looking uh, at similar information and watching the planned demonstrations. In fact, their intelligence division sent several emails to White House personnel, like Deputy Chief of Staff Tony Ornato and the head of the President's Protective Detail, Robert Engel, including certain materials listing events like those on the screen. The White House continued to receive updates about planned demonstrations, including information regarding the Proud Boys organizing and planning to attend events on January 6th. Although Ms. Hutchinson has no detailed knowledge of any planning involving the Proud Boys for January 6th, she did note this. I recall hearing the word Oath Keeper and hearing the word Proud Boys closer to the planning of the January 6th rally when Mr. Giuliani would be around. On January 3rd, the Capitol Police issued a special event assessment. In that document, the Capitol Police noted that the Proud Boys and other groups planned to be in Washington, D.C. on January 6th and indicated that, quote, unlike previous post-election protests, the targets of the pro-Trump supporters are not necessarily the counter-protesters as they were previously, but rather Congress itself is the target on the 6th. Of course, we all know now that the Proud Boys showed up on January 6th, marched from the Washington Monument to the Capitol that day, and led the riotous mob to invade and occupy our Capitol. Ms. Hutchinson, I want to play you a clip of one of our meetings when you described a call on January 4th that you received from National Security Advisor Robert O'Brien on the same topic, potential violence on January 6th. I received a call from Robert O'Brien, the National Security Advisor. He had asked if he could speak with Mr. Meadows about potential violent words of violence that he was hearing that were potentially going to happen on the Hill on January 6th. I had asked if he had connected with Tony Ornato because Tony Ornato had a conversation with him, with Mark about that topic. Robert had said, I'll, I'll talk to Tony. And then, um, 
you know, I don't know if Robert ever connected with Mark about the issue. Ms. Hutchinson, can you describe for us Mr. Ornato's responsibilities as Deputy Chief of Staff? The Deputy Chief of Staff position at the White House for operations is arguably one of the most important positions that somebody can hold. They're in charge of all security protocol for the campus and all presidential protectees, primarily the president and the first family, but anything that requires security for any individual that has uh, presidential protection, so the chief of staff or the um, national security advisor, as well as the vice president's team too. Tony would oversee all of that, and he was the conduit for security protocol between White House staff and the United States Secret Service. Thank you. And you also described a brief meeting between Mr. Ornato and Mr. Meadows on the potential for violence. Uh, the meeting was on January 4th. They were talking about the potential for violence on January 6th. Let's listen to a clip of that testimony. I remember Mr. Ornato had talked to him about intelligence reports. I remember Mr. Ornato coming in and saying that we had intel reports saying that there could potentially be violence on the, on the 6th. You also told us about reports of violence and weapons that the Secret Service were receiving on the night of January 5th and throughout the day on January 6th. Is that correct? That's correct. There are reports that police in Washington, D.C. had arrested several people with firearms or ammunition following a separate pro-Trump rally in Freedom Plaza on the evening of January 5th. Are those some of the reports that you recall hearing about? They are. Of course, the world now knows that the people who attacked the Capitol on January 6th had many different types of weapons. When a president speaks, the Secret Service typically requires those attending to pass through metal detectors, known as magnetometers, or MAGs for short. The Select Committee has learned that people who willingly entered the enclosed area for President Trump's speech were screened so they could attend the rally at the Ellipse. They had weapons and other items that were confiscated. Pepper spray, knives, brass knuckles, tasers, body armor, gas masks, batons, blunt weapons. And those were just from the people who chose to go through the security for the president's event on the ellipse, not the several thousand members of the crowd who refused to go through the mags and watched from the lawn near the Washington Monument. The Select Committee has learned about reports from outside the magnetometers and has obtained police radio transmissions identifying individuals with firearms, including AR-15s, near the ellipse on the morning of January 6th. Let's listen. There's an individual in a tree, maybe a white male, about six feet tall, tin build, brown cowboy boots. He's got blue jeans and a blue jean jacket, and underneath the blue jean jacket, the complainant both saw a stock of AR-15. Group of individuals, about five to eight, five to uh, eight other individuals. Two of the individuals in that group at the base of the tree near the fortifies were wearing green fatigues, green olive draft style fatigues, about five eight, five nine, skinny, uh, skinny white males, brown cowboy boots. They had Glock style pistols in their waistband. 8736 with the message that the object um, weapon on his right hip. After that, he's in the tree. 
Going to one, make sure PPD knows they have an elevated threat in the tree south side of Constitution Avenue. Look for the don't tread on me flag, American flag face mask, cowboy boots, weapon on the white right side hip. I've got three men walking down the street in fatigue, carrying AR-15s, obvious threat, four people independent. AR-15s at 14th and Independence. As you saw in those emails, the first report that we showed, we now know was sent in the eight o'clock hour on January 6th. This talked about people in the crowd wearing ballistic helmets and body armor, carrying radio equipment and military grade backpacks. The second report we showed you on the screen was sent by the Secret Service in the 11 a.m. hour, and it addressed reports of a man with a rifle near the ellipse. Ms. Hutchinson, in prior testimony, you described for us a meeting in the White House around 10 a.m. in the morning of January 6th, involving Chief of Staff Meadows and Tony Ornato. Were you in that meeting? I was. Let's listen to your testimony about that meeting, and then we'll have some questions. I think the last time we talked, you mentioned that um, some of the weapons that people had at the rally included flagpoles, oversized um, sticks or flagpoles, um, bear spray. Is there anything else that you recall hearing about the, um, the, the people who would gather on the left hand? I recall Tony and I having a conversation with Mark probably around 10 a.m., 10, 15 a.m., where I remember Tony mentioning knives, guns in the form of pistols and rifles. Um, bear spray, body armor, spears, and flagpoles. Spears were one item, flagpoles were one item, and then Tony had relayed to me something to the effect of, and these effing people are fastening spears onto the ends of flagpoles. And Ms. Hutchinson, here's a clip of your testimony regarding Mr. Meadows' response to learning that the rally attendees were armed that day. What was Mark's reaction, Mr. Meadows' reaction to this list of weapons that people had in the crowd? When Tony and I went in to talk to Mark that morning, Mark was sitting on his couch and on his phone, which was something typical. And I remember Tony just got right into it. I was like, sorry, I just want to let you know and informed him, like, this is how many people we have outside the mags right now. These are the weapons that we're known to have. It's possible he listed more weapons off that I just don't recall. Um, and gave him a brief but inconcise explanation, but also fairly fairly thorough. And I remember distinctly Mark not looking up for his phone. 